So welcome to the Keener Yoga Podcast, a one-stop shop for all kinds of discussions with some of the most esteemed in their field. We welcome your feedback and appreciate also if you take a moment to review us if you're listening on iTunes. So also, if you like what you hear, or at least some of it maybe, please consider donating at keenyoyoga.com and you can find it on the podcast page. But we've no intention of stopping anyway, that's for sure. And today, perhaps one of our highest profile guests is on the show. Bessel van der Kolk. He needs no introduction after most of us have at least heard of or not read his book, The Body Keeps the Score. Great title. Based on his years as a clinical psychologist, the book and his subsequent work present his attempts at incorporating movement therapy in his professional work with those suffering from trauma and its effects. This was due to his observation over many years of working with people with quite unbelievably horrific histories that are detailed in the book. And then at a point talking it over, as well as drug therapies that he offered, he found only made limited headway. So instead, the energy of trauma, literally trapped in the body, needed releasing, he found, in a similarly bodily manner. So hence the title of the book. Of course, we don't go into the book in detail too much on the show, on the podcast. Instead, we talk on how yoga is related, how yoga is related as a healing modality in movement. The role of the yoga teacher in this, how to handle those in a class potentially suffering trauma, as well as how to avoid triggering, triggering others, while still not abandoning, abandoning the medium of touch and not treating anyone with kid gloves, yet respecting everyone as an individual, potentially holding trauma. So there's so much to this interview, and even though I only had 45 minutes, and he told me at the start, I only had 30, so I actually probably did pretty well. We also talk on Drishti, and its relation to EMDR, which is the movement modality using the eyes, which is quite interesting at the end of the podcast. So, an amazing show, and um, despite the quality of the audio, please persevere with it, because it really does say something um, incredibly lucid and, and, and helpful things on this show so i hope you enjoy it and um yeah without further ado i'll pass you over to the recording so welcome dr van der kolk to the keen yoga podcast um thanks for coming on and I suppose to start, you're not a yoga teacher, as you pointed out in our brief discussion previously. You're clearly not a yoga teacher. You're a psychiatrist, uh, an author of a book that many of our students have read, The Body Keeps a Score, a wonderful book. I've read it, I've read it twice over at least. And um, I think it resonates with a lot of students now, particularly it's coming out the, the idea of yoga not just being something for enlightenment, I suppose, as it was originally framed you know, when it first came over. And now we're really looking at it as... As a trauma therapy. That's not a bad way of putting it, huh? For enlightenment. That's not bad. It's not. It depends on how you feel. Right, okay. Okay. Like, yeah, that's true enough. Um, <laughs> so, at what point, I suppose, my entry question would be, at what point did you find that the talking therapies and the drug therapies that you were trained to use as a, tra- as a psychiatrist coming out of university, out of training, didn't work? Or what was the turning point for you? Well, I thought that it doesn't work. It didn't take care of uh, it didn't take care of people losing touch with their bodies. Uh, so, but it became very clear in our research and our clinical observations 
is that traumatized people shut themselves down. Uh, they become literally uptight. Yeah. Racing themselves. Their nervous system gets very, gets very messed up. And so uh, uh, they start having low heart rate variability. And they start having decreased sensations in their bodies or hypersensations in the body. They become afraid of their own sensations in their bodies. So they need to be helped to feel safe, very gently sort of move into paying attention to yourself. Also, because what slowly began to emerge is the only way that we can actually access or influence the core survival part of our brain is through what's known as the midline structure of the cortex, which is the interoceptive network. Uh, feeling yourself, noticing yourself, meeting yourself on a very deep level. Clearly, meeting yourself on a level, that's a like mindfulness uh, uh, became a very core requirement to heal from trauma, actually. It's not optional. That's very, so once you become all uptight, you get stuck in a physically uh, up, uptight and frozen world. It has to be opened up. Mm. Do the two go together? Would you would you say that the talking and the moving go together, or can you simply do? Is simply the moving enough, or do you need to understand what comes up within the moving? There is no one answer, huh? and uh, it's very important for nobody to say I have the answer. So, part of healing from trauma is working with your body, accessing your body. Part of dealing with trauma is finding words for what happened to you. Part of dealing with trauma is to, to have developed a sense of self-compassion for what you have gone through. You know, so it's a multi-layered issue of which yoga can take a small part and psychotherapy takes a, plays a small part. Mm. And so we all are uh, donate a piece of a larger puzzle. Is there any way that you would contextualize movement to, to ha or having seen movement contextualized over years to make it more or less efficient in terms of doing this? Because, I mean, you talk in your book about a number of different, uh, you, you do theater, there's a physical theater uh, one, in one chapter, there's a yoga in another chapter. You know, there's a number of different ways. Now, my experience and what you said at the start was that, yes, there's a fear of, the own, of one's own feelings in the body and the context that of the yoga mat as a kind of parameter and the class as a parameter. And certainly this is ostensibly a Ashtanga based podcast, which is a repetitive form of yoga. It has a sequence and that sequence as a kind of context, that was very helpful um, in terms of a holding space, you know, for that movement. If it was a free flow movement, if it was a free flow movement, having come from a lot of trauma myself, I think I would have been overwhelmed and probably run away from, I wouldn't know how to process the sensations that were coming up. So it's good. I wouldn't know if that's true. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we haven't got control. Uh, you know, what I see is all the time is that somebody knows something and say, oh, I've found the answer. Uh, and that's like, no, it works very well for some people, mm. but never for everybody. I would never, being who I am, not a yoga teacher, I would never say, that form of yoga is the best. Uh, that's what you have to do. Uh, it, it depends very much on how 
see if you feel with your yoga instructor, how it tuned your yoga instructor. Uh, but I wouldn't be able to say one technique being better than any other technique. No, I suppose that wasn't exactly the way I wanted to phrase the question. It was more like, is there any qualities of the movement modality that make it particularly efficacious for kind of cleansing or, or kind of working or feeling or, or reconciling trauma in the body? I think it's more the interaction with the yoga teacher. It's more the way the yoga teacher moves, the way the yoga teacher uses their voice, uh, the yoga teacher giving people options, various options. It's very much more a function to my mind of how attuned the yoga teacher is than a particular technique. But like with everything else, trauma, I tend to go for a gentle exploration of oneself. Right. What about the uh, Stephen Porges's polygregal theory? How does that relate to your your idea of trauma in the body? Well, uh, Steve, Steve actually got into trauma because I invited him to my conference. It's a very helpful theory to um, to explain to some degree how yoga might work. But it's a very, he focuses on a tiny part of the brain and it's really much more complex than that. Uh -huh. And so now, uh, what I see happening is that one little piece, saying, oh, we have the answers you can take to this. Now, the polyvagal theory was one helpful small part component, but I would say what happens to the insula and people, the, the part of the brain that's registered what goes on in your body, which is very far removed from where the polyvagal theory takes place, is at least equally important. So is the medial forebrain that allows you to observe yourself. So these are all small parts of a much larger puzzle. But Steve's theory was very helpful in terms of helping us to focus on heart rate variability, helping us to focus on the autonomic nervous system, which is one small part of the whole larger mm. puzzle. I mean, I think yoga now is being very much corralled into the idea of it as a therapy to to arouse the parasympathetic nervous system, right? So to get over that fight or flight response. Yeah, everybody wants to be a biologist, mm -hmm, you know? Mm -hmm. And so people start throwing down parasympathetic nervous yeah, system. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't quite work that way. Okay, <laughs> it's, right. It's a gross oversimplification of how the brain works. Yeah. That's it. But what's troublesome for me is, oh, people start talking neuroscience language. Uh, and they go like, I more complex than that. It's about circuits in the brain. It's about uh, being able to filter out relevant information. It's about being able to notice the signals of your body. But it's so many, so, uh, you know, the polyvagal theory, very helpful. But it just explains a tiny, tiny piece of the whole thing. So how, how do people approach it if they're looking for, if they feel like they were looking for a modality? I mean, but is it just simply, I mean, the, the biggest piece of information you've given so far is the context of relationship with the teacher. 
within the movement structure? Yeah, well, I wouldn't say I would say the attunement of the teacher. I, I, when I go to my yoga, to yoga class, I don't have a relationship with the teacher. But the teacher's voice and gestures are very important to help me to tune into myself. And so, for example, at one point I went to um, a yoga class, particular form of yoga, and I'm doing the movement, and the yoga teacher starts talking about this Dr. Vanderkoek who explains how the body works in trauma. <laughs> and how do you know, and teach yoga? <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> you know, I, I think people, we should, all should do what we know best and read other stuff. Don't, don't, I see it all the time, but don't think that these little theories sort of explain the whole thing. Uh, for me, it's all an empirical question. So uh, the hardest thing is for people to actually pay attention to their bodies. Mm. Uh, and so you're going to a yoga studio to help for people to help you to get a practice of paying attention to your body and noticing how you can shift the sensation in your body by these asanas and these breathing techniques. Uh, so, so, but, uh, you know, same thing, same thing when I talk to art therapists or dance therapists, is just show what you do and how well you do it. But for God's sake, don't talk about the amygdala, the polyvagal theory, because there's a whole, you know, that, that makes it, that those are pseudo explanations. <laughs> And I think also it's easy to shelter behind information, isn't it? Because one all wants to make something that, you know, kind of feels certain. And it's easier to kind of feel certain with information than actually go into the uncertainty of the feelings that might arise in your body. Rather than say, well, if I do a forward fold, it's stimulating for my parasympathetic nervous system and it's doing this to the brain and that to the brain. So therefore, I am safe rather than actually feel what it feels like to forward fold. Yeah, see, I think we all have a need to feel respected. And so if you don't feel like you get respected as a yoga teacher, you need to say, oh, but it does something to the brain. And let me tell you what it does to the brain. And then you, then you sound more knowledgeable. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, my yoga teacher doesn't need to tell me about the brain. Uh, doesn't know about it. He doesn't need to know about the brain, actually. Like, yeah. Yeah. But my yoga teacher is very... By doing it, you be very attuned to how can she help me to actually have a practice of touching my toes, of by having a practice of twisting my spine. That's what the yoga teacher does. But then, then if something right, and then if something comes up, what do they do then? I mean, because this is another question I had, particularly for you: is you've all these things that come up when you move the body. And then the yoga teacher is meant to be a repository of these things. I mean, what do they do? You know, what do they do then? Well, I think the hard thing about being the hard thing about being yoga teacher is that yoga is essentially a non-verbal practice. And so, if people do, let's say, a pigeon pose, and they get triggered with sensation in their pelvis uh, that makes them feel scared and panicky. Uh, how well is this yoga teacher able to pick up that this person is stiffening up 
and how well is it able, person able to help people to relax and to oppose. You need, don't need anything, you need to go, go to fancy brain language, but learning to be very attuned to people without language, that's a big challenge mm, for you. Mm. And so what's, what's interesting to me is that I've, my patients go to yoga, uh, and it's very much part of that. Uh, the treatment package is to get a yoga practice, and then I hear what poses are triggering for them. And I hear them talk about the happy baby pose, how and how terrifying it is, and how they start to become upset. And then I argue with my own yoga teachers, uh, who say, well, you should avoid a touch, you should avoid a assist, right. because that can trigger mm -hmm. people. Yes, it can. Well, you should avoid assist. That means that you should explore with the person how helpful assists are for them. Uh, like, I have my old colleague who used to work for me at the trauma center, uh, says to people, oh, you shouldn't do happy baby pose with rape survivors. And I say, next, you do need to do happy baby pose, but because you need to own every part of your body, but you have to do it very, very gradually. And to really notice very closely, to encourage people to push themselves to the edge and to come back. And push themselves to the edge and to come back. But no, no, actually, prohibition never touch people. No, touch is important. Huh? But for some people, touch initially may be very scary. And so as a yoga teacher, you need to really discuss with people do you want to assist? Do you want to assist? And the practice of my patients is very much that the yoga teachers regularly violate agreements about not touching. For right. And that's not good. <laughs> no, it doesn't sound good. But what if, I mean, is it, is it not potentially too, what, the argument against it would be it's too risky. That, you, that it's too risky to, to touch or trigger something too great and therefore don't do it at all. That's what people do. But as long as you cannot twist your pelvis, you don't own your body. And so, yes, it's challenging. And so, but then to make prohibitions against it means that you cut people off from their bodies. Unless you can say to people, oh, you're too scared to do, um, uh, do happy baby pose. Oh, maybe something else can also help you to open up your relationship to your pelvis. Because the job is to own every piece of your body. And so that doesn't mean that you run away from the challenges, but you go and very gently and carefully help people to meet the challenges. Yeah. And I recommend always for any form of therapy, a yoga form of therapy, is to make videotapes and to look at your practice with somebody. And, and so if you have time to speak in your class, look at the videotape with a colleague and with a teacher and say, huh, when we did that pose, the patient became, or the person became uptight. Or when we did that pose, you could see their breathing change. Mm. And so uh, just like a therapist, a yoga teacher need to be 
exquisite observers of the body, uh, uh, the physiological causal system. Uh, you have to adjust your practice, your teaching to the physiological level of the larger of the people you work. Oh, what about as the individual? Energy, the physiological, the physiological arousal, uh, knowing about the polyvagal theory, it might be helpful. You can just keep in your mind what that arousal is about. Right, that's what I was going to ask you. So as the individual practicing, what do you do when you get a feeling that, you know, you're uncomfortable with or, you know, whatever feeling is in the body, right? And do you, do you need to go back to tracing the source of it in a kind of, in a kind of verbal manner, in a language? Or, I mean, how, what do you do when a, a feeling comes up that's intense? What do you do with it? You, you find a way of relaxing that. And so you'd see, is Shivasana helpful to you? For many people, Shivasana is actually quite scary. And because being relaxed and not defended may bring stuff up. They would rather feel busy. Huh? So you need to find out um, when you feel, feel, feel uptight, what's helpful to you? Yeah, the mountain pose is helpful or some other pose, or uh, um, have, uh, uh, what do you call it? happy yeah. <laughs> What do you call it together? But some other pose, and see what makes you feel most comfortable. So when the feeling's coming up, you don't can persevere into it as an individual, or you go into a different posture? You go there, but you go there. You notice it, and you notice that this is a challenge that I need to work on. Don't avoid it. Uh, the, the nature of trauma is you have an experience that is too much for you to handle. And so you become afraid of your own sensations. Mm, mm. Uh, and, uh, and, and if you are a traumatized person and you do yoga, it's, you can be pretty sure that uncomfortable stuff will come up for many people. Huh? And so you notice what's uncomfortable, and you help people to find a way of, of restoring themselves, and then you go, I need to go more there, because what keeps the trauma going is the avoidance of yourself. Okay. Mm. But I think yoga teachers are potential great healers, but it's also very, very complex to pick up all these signals without any words. Because yoga is a non-verbal practice. And, and, and their healing isn't actually to fix the patient in a kind of verbal manner or, a, you know, a psychoanalysis, which often becomes the case, is simply observance and acknowledging the person as they are. Analysis as a treatment for trauma? Well, the, the well, yoga, yoga teacher as a, as a therapist. Completely. Analysis. If you are traumatized, you go. All these people do is explain why you screwed up. Like, okay, now I know why you screwed yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. yeah. But knowing why you screwed up doesn't make you less screwed up. Now I know why I'm screwed exactly. up. Exactly. That's exactly. That's but exactly my experience. Yeah. Yeah. But if you have never, if you have never been able to tell somebody. My dad beat me up, and I'm really scared of big guys. Very good. Oh, good. I was able to say that. Good. Okay, I get scared of big guys because my father was a violent drug 
Okay, that gives me some sort of handle of the next time I meet a big guy to maybe keep my distance or do some breathing or go to a yoga class before I do it so I don't get so tight. So you have some handle to deal with yourself. But at the end, I would say that being able to get in touch with your body and feeling safe doing a happy baby pose or doing a pose that happy challenge you may be more transformative than telling people how you were abused. Or at a certain point, you know, I found that it was just, once you acknowledged it and once you've been able to say it, then it's like, well, what do you do then? You know, you have to, it's still in the, it still feels in the body. And that, that my experience was exactly what you explained in the book, as so many people, I'm sure, it still feels there, even though I've said it, even though I acknowledged it. What now? What now? I just keep, keep on saying it over and over again and kind of almost exacerbating it by kind of, you know, going into it more. I don't know. Um, yeah, the great danger, of course, of, um, of verbal psychotherapy is that now you explain, how, explain all kind of bad things about you that you feel ashamed, embarrassed about. Say, oh, that explains who I am and it becomes an alibi. Becomes an identity. I'm an incest victim. You cannot touch me. Or I'm an incest victim, and hence I cannot do happy baby pose. Instead of saying, I'm an incest survivor, which makes it very hard for me to do happy baby pose and to own my own pelvis. And so I need to learn how to own my pelvis so the incest does not continue to get relived every time I do anything sexual. But I can actually reorganize my system so that my pelvis is mine and doesn't belong to the abuser anymore. But as long as you pull it off, basically you have donated a piece of your body to whoever did something to you. That's so you need to reclaim yourself. Is it important to have a group context for movement? I mean, I, know, I kind of like the, uh, a certain Stephen Porges interview when he talks about kind of the contextualization of oneself in a, you know, as affirmed in a society that you have affirmation from. I, I didn't know. I didn't know Steve was a yoga practitioner. <laughs> he's, he's, he's not. <laughs> he's not. <laughs> yeah. It's more like the idea that you have to have positive signals. You know, the, the idea that you have the positive signals from the outside reaffirming your own state. And within movement case, within moving your body, is it okay to do it on your own? Or, I mean, a number of the examples you use in the book very much focus on engagement with within a context, right? Yeah, I, I know people have private yoga classes. Uh, certainly on, with COVID, a lot of people are practicing uh, of you know from a tape or something, but for me personally, the group experience of you know I'm a stiff white guy of being in a class where there's other stiff white guys and very limber young people and uh, a variety of people is very very encouraging in a way because you know we're all creatures who try to do the same thing and I find the communal part of yoga actually very rich uh, also because when you traumatized you become a very isolated person because you are, are always afraid of getting hurt when you're upset or freezing. And so being with other people and going through these challenging experiences can be very, very enjoyable. 
uh, to see, oh, they can do it. Maybe someday I can do this too. Oh boy, it's beautiful to see this person do it. And you activate your mirror neural system. And so when I go to a yoga class and the person next to me is some limber person who can do things, it almost feels like I can do it too. It's like watching Michael Jordan play basketball. You see him jump. Ooh, vicariously jump also. So everybody feels more aesthetic after seeing Michael Jordan, even though you may be absolutely unable to jump more than one inch from the floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It seems like you're handling, you're handling, the mirror, yeah. I mean, your handling of it is quite, your handling of the whole subject is quite, let's say, open. And it, I mean, it, what's coming more and more into yoga is very much kid gloves, right? That like we've got um, consent cards in some places where you put on the floor, you know, like not to touch or this or that, right? So you've got, you know, all this language now of being triggered. You can't trigger me. You can't use this language. It might trigger me. Um, thoughts on that? <laughs> See, I, 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 I mean, I'm reconstructed. You know, I was born in 1943, so what can you expect from me? You know, I'm completely out of touch with the culture. But no, life is filled with triggers. Mm. You know, and so and you come for treatment in order to deal with triggers. And so saying, oh, you cannot do that, you cannot do that, you cannot do that. I'm sorry that you have a hard time with all these things. How can we help you to tolerate that, 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 rather than make a sterile environment where you never feel scared? Mm. Where are you going to live? Mm. Uh, we live in Texas. Like, <laughs> like life, life sucks a good amount of the time, except for the <laughs> So you cannot, you, you cannot avoid feeling bad. You cannot avoid feeling scared. Uh, the question is, how do you deal with being scared? How do you deal with feeling uptight? And what can you do for yourself to make yourself more robust or um, capable? But don't say to other people, you can never do that to me because I get upset. Duh, duh. I have to go to work. Uh, it's really upsetting that I have to get out of bed in the morning, actually. Uh, <laughs> off and off, you know, like, <laughs> Is there, is there any, um, do you think the language is important? I mean, you mentioned language of the yoga teacher before. Do we, ought one that to be very careful with language then? Yes. And can you give any examples of better or worse language to frame it, stuff in, instructions, cues? Uh, I, I don't know enough about yoga. I, no, you've been to some classes, uh, evidently. No, my great, my, my, my great, uh, Teacher or yoga example is Stephen is um, Stephen Cop. Oh yeah, I've worked on just in, yoga in, and interviewed him recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I did. Yes, yes. Great, great uh, guy. He's, he's a but I haven't talked to him since the pandemic. No, started, he's, so. he's well. He's so well. He's finishing. He's finishing his book. Another book. Yeah. Another book. He's very prolific. Yeah. Um, so I take my cues from some Stephen Cope because uh, he just he just gets drama and he gets how difficult it is and he can talk about the drama of the of the unwanted child. He goes, yeah, and and how people get triggered in your class, yeah, and how hard it may be. Yeah, something is really hard. Nobody wants to recover from trauma. It's hard, yeah. you know. 
There's no easy shortcuts, you know. That, but so what you want is a yoga teacher who is not judgmental. That's very important to not be judgmental. Say, so do what you can. Uh, my very first yoga teacher was not spectacular, but but what I liked about her, she would always give us three options. Yeah, I think that's. Now, if you're yeah, just beginning yeah. to do that, you're hopelessly tired. You may want to do that. And if you want to challenge yourself a little bit more, and if you really feel limber, you can do that. And I thought that was lovely. Mm, mm, mm. I see. You did feel humiliated if you did only, like if you can't touch your toe, just touch your calf. Just touch it. See what you can do. But no saying, oh, it's not good enough. Because every explanation is good. And so the issue of, of being really supportive of people exploring things and giving people space to recover and to gather their courage is very important, but not, uh, not, oh, we won't ever do this because you're a traumatized person. That means that we accept your identity and that, it, that you're permanently damaged. Mm. And I don't think that's a good message. The message is, yeah, you survive this fight. My main, my main, my main thing that keeps me uh, to do this work is the incredible that people have to go on with their lives despite the fact that they have seen the most horrendous stuff. And so trauma survivors are among the most amazing people in the world because they have survived something that the rest of us couldn't even imagine surviving. And so with respect, but not with kids' gloves. But, but you don't push people uh, my saying throughout my book is the, the saying by W.H. Auden, truth like love and sleep resents approaches that are too intense. I so see you don't go to a fast, sweaty yoga class if you're just beginning to discover uh, how your body works. And so gentle yoga is important, but the goal is to own your body, every part of your body. Can you get overstimulated by movement? And then, I mean, is that what you're saying? Oh, absolutely. You can, no, no. If you do too much, you start feeling like you're getting raped again. So, indeed, being very careful not to push people too hard is terribly important. And triggering is not good. But who should be the judge of the trigger at the end? It's going to be you. And your yoga teacher cannot determine that for you. They can ask, what's that like for you? Or I saw, or to register as a yoga teacher, boy, that person stopped and sat all the way in the back of the class and she seemed to lie on her mat and not do this. How can I help this person to encourage her to do a little bit more, more action? Mm-hmm. But at the end, uh, people themselves have to, have to determine what that triggers mm. What happens if it? I learned to manage. What happens if you're the teacher, though, on the other end of it, and you see someone visibly in a state of re-traumatization? You're in a group class setting. What do you do? Uh, I would say something about be sure to take a break from time to time. It's perfectly all right not to participate in every asana. It's okay to notice that your body is not ready to do this. 
And so see how far you can do it and stop before you get too upset, but see what you can tolerate. Huh? Uh, but that's what good yoga teachers do anyway, don't they? Yeah, one would hope so. <laughs> I think that... I think the group's class setting is kind of sometimes difficult because I've had situations where there's many people in the class and then there's one person who you can see is going through something and you can't stop, you can't stop the class, you know, um, you're leading it from the front um, and you'd like to take a moment with the person um, and maybe you'd also, you don't know what to do at the time and also maybe you'd like to speak to them at the end maybe, but you also feel that maybe that's overstepping the mark or, you know. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of confusion still for me as, as to I, how I, best to approach. Yeah, I, I, th I think if you if you see somebody freak, freak out, be sure to give the class options about what to do. And while people are busy with their pose, I might walk over to that person and say, "Are you okay? Um, would you like an assist? Would you like me to hold you back while you try this pose, or would you like to just take a rest here, have a little conversation with that person?" that you acknowledge how hard it is, but also uh, encourage them and honor them for still being in class. Because the, the, the danger, of course, is that if they get triggered in the class and there's no support, they'll never come back. Mm. And for, to my mind, for a traumatized person to lose any hope of ever reclaiming their bodies is basically death sentence. Yeah. And so, yeah. so really encouraging people to stay with the class or to find a class that's really most helpful for them. You may even think about who among your colleagues would be doing a gentle form of yoga that you do, or might be more flexible than you are in your practice. Look around if there might be some other people who might be able to do better than you are. But yoga is not about storytelling. It's about having a body that needs to be helped to organize. And so, so as to my mind, your job is to notice when somebody becomes too uptight and to see whether your personal attention to it, your kind voice and your nice face, that can help a person to feel safe in the classroom, even though it can be difficult. And to say, you know, these, these particular asanas may be very hard for some people. And that's okay. And so if you want to sit it out, sit it out. But they, but they need to be masters of what triggers it, and they need to have permission for you to, to nurture themselves, to take care of mm. I mean, it strikes me what you're saying is actually just the ultimate simplicity of a, like a direct and caring relationship with another individual, really. You know, which is which has got no obvious instructions or qualifications around it. Is there more to it than that, or is it just simply being with it, like a kind of a kind of radical being with someone else and noticing them? It's not a relationship, you know. Like when you're a kindergarten teacher with a bunch of out of control three and four year olds, uh, your job is to be a good teacher to a four year olds. It's not like to have a relationship with these kids. I mean, you'll have a relationship, but. You're the teacher and they're the students. And so uh, you don't share your own personal life with them. Uh, and as a teacher, you do whatever you can to help that person have a good yoga class. But that's not the same as a relationship. Aside from Stephen Cope, 
I have very few relationships in the in the yoga world, actually. Uh, I've got the many classes. But you did pick and up. I'm not to be known by. <laughs> I bet you have. <laughs> Maybe they know you though. But I bet you, you picked Stephen though because you did fill a relationship with him. So there must be something in that. No. 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 All right. I picked Stephen because he's just close to where you live in. Because he's smart. As hell. He's quite and, smart. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's smart as hell. Yeah. And could really explain to me what yoga does for people. I mean, but the way he writes about yoga really made me, give me much deeper understanding about yoga than anything else that I've read. Okay. Well. And, you know, and we hang out at the same institution. I teach at Kapala where he was a guru for a long time. Also. Yes, he's, he's still there. Um, maybe last question then. You, you talk about the EDMR and the, um, how, how effective that can be. Now, in yoga, they've got you telling you, yeah, they're telling you to look at certain places, right? They've got called drishti, uh, the use of the eyes. Would that be, you know, is that related at all to, to this modality, the EDMR? That's a very interesting question. Uh, I don't know eye practice in yoga, so I've not come across Yeah, there are. Yeah. But I've always wondered, that does, see, EMDR is a very simple technique. Mm, mm. And I've why did it take people 5,000 years to discover the movie Eyes of Out? No, it's, it's in yoga. I bet yeah, it's, discovered yeah, it's called drishti, gazing points. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, well, see, so, see, that doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> because, <laughs> you never heard that before. <laughs> There you go. No, I haven't heard that, but, uh, but every time it's that people, we are a fucked up species, you know, like uh, everywhere people do nasty things to each other. And so every culture has developed ways of helping people deal with trauma. And to my mind, maybe, maybe yoga to a large degree was developed in India in order to help people, help people with trauma. And in China, they developed Qigong. Uh, similar, some of different practice. In Africa, they have drumming practices. Um, and so every, every culture finds stuff that's worthwhile paying, paying attention to. And so yoga happens to be one very good trauma treatment, actually. Mm. But in India, people don't talk about the inner reality. I mean, you go, you go to sit down with somebody and tell them, oh, when I was three years old, I was raped by my dad or something. That's, that's not part of the Indian tradition. It's truth-telling uh, in that regard. And so that's what people in Northern Europe are good at. <laughs> but the people in Northern Europe did not discover how to work with the body. So people in India were good at that. Do no? you think that yoga was instigated for, as a trauma methodology, I would guess that's probably true. Right. You know, if you're, if you're very happy, uh, you're comfortable and getting along with other people, you don't feel... You probably don't go to yoga studio. I mean, I've always gone to yoga because I had to, not because of this... Don't you think, don't you think the, the inher luxury, <laughs> inherent wish of also of the species is transcendence, that we also want... 
to transcend the condition where people are doing nasty things to each other all the time and you know idealism right it's from you know from Plato onwards you know you've got this wish for the ideal um yeah maybe that's there as well um Uh, bottom line is uh really value what you do like uh you don't have to know about brain scans and yoga i mean i really enjoyed doing the research and show to show i wanted to show how effective yoga was and so we published three scientific articles on yoga you know this wasn't much fun <laughs> getting money to do a, a randomized controlled yoga study you, know, you have to be a little crazy to like that uh, but you know i'm very proud that we did yeah. it um, and that we put yoga on the map for trauma treatment and say we did something. All right. Well, I know you're a busy man. What about, um, just give me, I always wrap it up. I'll just let, just to give the audience a little bit more information about you. Can you give me one inspiration, something that inspires you, a person or something, uh, a place or a book and uh, one guilty pleasure? A guilty pleasure. One of my guilty pleasures actually is coming to Australia. Uh, I love coming. I've, I've been there every year, if down till the pandemic. To Australia? 25 years. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a long time. Yeah. Uh, what do you, what do you, nice what do you like about it? You should go. Yeah, I would love to go. Yeah. Really <laughs> good books. Like, you know, good books about yoga is uh, Stephen Cope is great. Uh, another person who's great to read is. Eve Ansler, uh, the person who wrote the vagina monologues, who has written beautiful books about trauma. Uh, who else? Uh, I think Stephen Levine's books are very useful to understand about the body and, and your Peter Levine? body experience. The, the, the uh, Taming the Tiger. Yeah, 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 yeah he's good. Yeah. yeah. And of course, your, your book. Yeah. Not my book, but I don't need to advertise it anymore because everybody's reading it. Yeah, they've already read it, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. You, you wrote a bestseller there. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't think there's anybody who knew is going to read it because, you know, so many people have read it. Well, you hit, look, to be fair, you hit upon a good title, didn't you? It's a, good t- it's a bloody good title. The, the title of the book is pretty yeah, good. It's, it's, it's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think that. The title is half the half the better, <laughs> but writing, writing this four hundred sixty four pages. Yeah, the, right, the, writing, the writing's all right. The writing's all right. But the title, <laughs> no, the writing's good. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, have fun, enjoy yourself. Uh, you, yoga is a very important thing, and I'm delighted that our culture has more and more room for yoga, and it's less and less stigmatized. And I think you're doing very important things for all of us. So keep doing it. Thank you, Van der Klerk, Doctor. And uh, yeah, wonderful to have you. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye.